This is The Guardian. I'm Jane Lee and this is The Full Story. So friends, we came here to find agreement. And we have across so many areas, perhaps across a greater range than we could have possibly hoped for. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has hailed his government's Jobs and Skills Summit a success. Let us leave here resolved to build on this foundation and let the legacy of this gathering be a stronger economy that works better for people, that works better for workers, that works better for business. The two-day conference brought union and business leaders to Canberra to find common ground on the future of Australia's economy. Because even though the unemployment rate is at a record low, the future is looking a little grim. We have skills shortages, stagnant wages and an ageing workforce, one which many women are unable to fully participate in. So what was actually achieved at the job summit? And how far will this go to resolving some of these long-standing problems? Today, how Labor plans to change Australia's workforce. It's Tuesday, the 6th of September. Hey, Paul. Hey, how's it going, Jane? (laughs) Yeah, good. I think this is the first time we've spoken, especially podcast form, since the election, right? Oh, well, happy 47th Parliament and happy Jobs and Skills Summit. Paul Karp is a political reporter for Guardian Australia. I remember during the election... We heard a lot about this Jobs and Skills Summit that Albanese wanted to hold. And at the time, it just seemed like a political strategy, this idea of making Labor seem a little bit more palatable to business and perhaps more conservative voters. But we also haven't heard about the economy and industrial relations policy spoken about in this kind of collaborative, idealistic way in quite some time. So what did you make of this? Yeah, well, at the election, Labor had some specific industrial relations policies about uh, trying to increase the minimum wage and trying to achieve same job, same pay and labour hire, for example. Mm. But in calling for this summit, I think they really wanted to evoke Bob Hawke starting his term in government with an economic summit in 1983 to talk about bringing union and business together to try and draw a contrast with what they saw as, you know, Scott Morrison and the coalition's tendency to try and create fights rather than to try and find agreement. And so it's sort of the promise of a a better way of doing politics. So whilst there has been a great diversity of perspectives here, I think there's also been a striking sense of unity. Prime Minister Albanese said it was good to see a level of collaboration and cooperation. There's been a powerful sense of hope and optimism, a belief in the transformative opportunities that this moment represents for our country. But also, if you're a cynic, trying to manufacture some consensus to do some things that maybe they always wanted to do, but they didn't come out right out and say that they were going to do before the election. Mm. And we know that opposition leader Peter Dutton didn't even attend the summit, talking about all working together. What was his main criticism of the summit at the outset before it had even begun? Well, Liberal leader Peter Dutton said it was going to be a talk fest and it was going to be a a union summit. I mean, uh, never mind the fact that, you know, only a third of the people invited were from unions and it it was a genuine attempt to bring people together. He thought that that attack would work well to try and deny the summit credibility. But I think he's stuck in this pattern of constantly opposing everything. And on some key policy areas like climate change, they don't seem to have learned any lessons from the election. And that is that people do seem to to want bipartisanship to some extent. 
Mm. And I want to get more into the weeds about Dutton and I suppose his reaction to the summit a little bit later on. But first, let's you know, go to what was actually announced over the two days. There were a number of announcements made that were aimed at getting more people into the workforce and increasing workforce participation. So the government made plans to open up training, migration, and also plans to make changes to the pension rules. Let's start with the pension. Labor announced it would give people on the age and veterans pension a one-off income credit. So that would allow them to earn $4,000 more before their payments are reduced. What did you make of this idea? Well, I think it's seen as a common sense measure to try and get uh, older Australians back into the workforce if they want to work a bit more. It's something that Peter Dutton had suggested back in June, and I think Labor was happy to agree to it but just wanted to work out the detail. The overall cost of the measure at only $55 million uh, for what's being described as a sort of one-off measure Mm. is interesting because it sort of implies that it's an option that's there for older Australians if they want it but that the government doesn't think that this is going to bring, you know, an army of older workers back into the workforce. And Labor has previously criticised schemes like this, saying that, look, it's just not a lot of people are taking them up. Mm. So it's an option that's there for people. It will shut down the Liberal criticism, but it, it's not going to solve the workforce shortage, however, you know, well-intentioned it is. Mm. Uh, Helen, and thank you all for the previous discussion and the great engagement that we had in that session. The second migration uh, session this morning is really about opening this subject up to the big picture. And I've been given another announcement at the summit was in the area of migration. Labor announced it would allow tens of thousands more people to migrate to Australia in the next year, lifting the permanent migration cap from 160,000 to 195,000. Tell me more about that. So basically, we're crying out for more workers and with the two-year borders being shut due to COVID, Mm. almost every sector of the economy needs more workers, including, you know, the agriculture sector, uh, including areas of skill shortage like, you know, engineers and IT specialists, care industries like healthcare and aged care. Really, we need more workers uh, across the board, but they also don't want uh, temporary skilled migration to be something that replaces training Australians. But for the last decade, our immigration program has been on continental drift. It has no strategy. The Home Affairs Minister, Claire O'Neill, announced on Friday that they're going to increase the permanent migration cap by 35,000 places to 195,000. We make it easy for temporary migrants to come here, but very hard for highly skilled permanent migrants. We've got the whole thing backwards. The system is expensive. It's bureaucratic. It takes an eternity to get anything done. So Labor wants to move towards permanent migration because they don't want Australia to become a guest worker state and they think that having people come on temporary skilled visas, then having to go back after a period of time only to bring different people in to fill the same skill shortage makes no sense. They've also said that they're going to allow international students to work for a few more years after they complete their education in Australia to try and boost the workforce. How much could this one measure, this one lever, if you like, of getting more migrants into Australia resolve these skill shortages we're seeing? Well, everyone agrees that we needed more people, so it is a good measure. But there's still a lot of unanswered questions, particularly about what happens with temporary skilled workers. Like we know that they're going to increase the pay floor so that temporary skilled workers don't undercut uh, Australian wages, but we don't know how high they're going to raise it. So there's still a lot of things to be worked out, but the permanent boost is a good one. 
I mean, it was widely expected, wasn't it, Paul, that Labor would raise the migration cap. Both business and unions were broadly in favour of this. As you say, it's seen as good policy. So opposition leader Peter Dutton could only really criticise the fact that the government waited until the job summit to make that announcement. And in stark contrast to him, Nationals leader David Littleproud did attend the summit where he pushed for greater pathways for people to become permanent residents in regional Australia. So what do you make of this shift or this divide? Like, is the coalition now starting to soften its language around migration compared to the previous Morrison government? People in in Labor were actually really surprised by the coalition reaction to this. They were waiting for you know, scare campaigns and sort of race baiting, fear mongering. And it just didn't come because mm. the coalition's business constituency is the one that is screaming out uh, for more workers. And particularly in the agricultural sector, the National Farmers Federation and others say, you know, we need 170,000 people just in that sector to get, you know, food from farm to plate. So, the Nationals leader, David Littleproud, participated in the summit. He said he was there to be constructive. And really, this did lay the groundwork for support for some of these measures, like increasing the migration cap. Could this summit maybe mark a line in the sand in terms of not hearing any more of these scare campaigns from the Coalition on Migration, for a little while at least? Well, I mean, they can always come back later and, and criticise it. There are lines of attack that it might open up, but in the in the short term, they've gone along with it. Mm. Well, the government also announced more spots and funding for fee-free TAFE in the next year. What's this aimed at? So uh, midweek, the National Cabinet uh, agreed to this plan, which is $1.1 billion to bring forward 180,000 free TAFE places to begin next year in 2023. And basically, uh, the point of this is that they they want to be training more Australians to fill skill shortages, not just bringing in workers from overseas. Mm. Okay, so those are the three big announcements from the Jobs and Skills Summit on growing Australia's workforce. I want to ask you about industrial relations as well. Uh, Albanese had, of course, flagged this as a big opportunity for unions and business interests to come to the table to make enterprise bargaining work better. Um, now, the opposition has criticised the summit as being biased towards union interests to the detriment of business. But what did you actually see happen between these two groups in the lead up to and also over the course of the summit? Well, there were some reforms uh, that they could agree on that were sort of low-hanging fruit uh, to get consensus for. They'd basically agreed to the last time the Morrison government had consulted, right. and that was things like improving the better-off overall test so that a hypothetical shift pattern would not result in a workplace pay deal uh, being being blocked. Mm. So there was some agreement already on that. But then we saw the unions trying to forge a consensus for more contentious or more ambitious proposals like multi-employer bargaining. Yeah, that's something that key business groups were initially vehemently opposed to. Can you explain how multi-employer bargaining would work compared to what happens now? Generally, people's pay is set in one of three ways. You're either getting the minimum, the minimum in the award or the national minimum wage. You've either got an individual uh, agreement, one employee and their boss about what to pay them, or you've got what's called an enterprise agreement, which is a pay deal between one employer and their entire workforce. Mm. Now, the proposal for multi-employer bargaining is that instead of that deal just covering one employer in an industry, it can cover many. So, many childcare centres or many retail small businesses uh, at the same time. 
Right. So that would allow unions to negotiate on behalf of much greater staff when dealing with multiple employers across an industry, for example. Yes, it, it would it would mean that uh, for, for the same amount of effort, you can cover a lot more people uh, and that makes it easier uh, to bargain, but also gives the workers more power because employees at more heavily unionised workforces can help bring up the wages of uh, employees doing similar jobs at workforces that might have fewer union members. Mm. How significant is it that this agreement's been reached between business groups and unions? It doesn't seem like something that happens every day. Yeah, it's it's hugely significant because basically since the early 1990s, the way the bargaining system has worked is an individual employer bargains with their workforce and that's it. Yeah. But you know, in some industries, unions do still push for what are called pattern agreements, where they try and get the same wage rise at every employer, like in construction, where they routinely ask for, you know, 5% a year pay rises. And Mm. that actually works better at winning bigger pay rises. So what we've seen is by the ACTU getting some employer agreement to do that, they've given Labor this option to try and open up bargaining to, to different forms at the same time. An employer would still be able to do a deal directly with their workforce, but they're trying to make it easier to have deals that cover multiple employers. And in the long run, that would be a very significant change. I mean, you've written, Paul, that the Albanese government has taken a sort of, quote, middle path between unions and business groups on this issue of multi-employer bargaining. It's promised to legislate, quote, flexible options for reaching agreements. What could that look like in practice? Well, I think there's been a lot of concern that this will result in industry-level bargaining, meaning exactly the same uh, condition across every employer in an industry. Mm. But there's already clearly one safeguard in what Labor proposed, which is they're not going to interfere if an employer still wants to do a deal direct with their workforce. So what I think this will result in is actually the possibility that you could be sucked up into this multi-employer system is actually going to operate as an incentive for employers to do deals direct with their workforce. Mm. That's going to mean more enterprise agreements and those result in regular pay rises that mean you know workers are less likely to fall behind inflation. So it, it will work in a few ways. Those employers who suddenly get a jolt and want to do a pay deal with their workforce, and it will work for uh, those sectors where there are lots of employers that want to bargain together. There are still unanswered questions. You know, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese joins you now. Prime Minister, welcome. Good morning, Patricia. Let's start with some of the outcomes of the Jobs Summit, if we can. And I just need to start by clearing something up. Prime Minister Albanese was on RN Breakfast and he didn't want to be drawn into ruling things in or out about how this bargaining would work. Okay, so in terms of the negotiation, the idea that it be compulsory is on the table. That's part of the negotiation. It it may Uh, end up that way. I I never play the the on-the-table game, Patricia, because that is uh, not a way in which you get Uh, resolution. Uh, What we have is to work through the detail of the legislation. We need reform in this broad agreement. He didn't want to say whether or not Labor would ever make it compulsory for employers to engage in multi-employer bargaining. They don't want to be drawn into ruling things out like, oh, you can have a a pay deal that covers multiple employers, but you can't go on strike to get it. I mean, that that would really defang this proposal very, you know, significantly. I think what they're envisaging is that, you know, that there's going to have to be a threshold. You know, if an employer says, no, we don't want to do either 
a pay deal with you or with multiple employers and the workforce does, there is going to have to be some threshold in the Fair Work Act that, that allows a deal to be struck there. As you mentioned, Paul, Labor has said that they will introduce a safeguard to ensure that the government won't interfere when employers want to bargain directly with just their staff. But Peter Dutton has warned that allowing industry-wide bargaining would be disastrous for the economy. The the unions are empowered, they're emboldened, uh, and it's going to be a dangerous period for the Australian economy if we've got economy-wide bargaining where we can have economy-wide strikes Uh, and they have no regard... What do you make of his claim that, you know, industry-level bargaining could lead to these broader disastrous effects for the economy? Well, I I think where there is some credence to it is in talking about strike action. Australia has extremely low rates of industrial action and if you're a conservative and you measure that as uh, that's the measure of a good industrial relations system then he's probably right that it will increase strikes but is that something to worry about necessarily i mean if those are occurring to support better wage claims that result in people's pay packets not shrinking then that that's not necessarily a bad thing and, and as i said i think the industry level scare campaign overstates it to some extent But as you say, Paul, multi-employer bargaining will tip the balance of power in workplace negotiations towards workers and unions, right? It's definitely an increase in worker power and uh, I don't think that the Albanese government has shied away from that. They're quite happy to say that if it increases union membership, that's good and that they want to see wages moving and that necessarily entails an evening up of that power imbalance. Next, what was missing from the Jobs Summit and when can we start to see real changes? Were there any important issues you heard raised that the government didn't promise to address more concretely? Well, I think the one sort of missed opportunity was that there was a lot of rhetoric about the problem of women's workforce participation, but the solutions that were presented were the things that the government is already doing, which is Mm. a very generous $5 billion increase in childcare subsidies that will take effect in the middle of next year. But ask from the ACTU and the BCA and others was to bring that forward six months to January. They also asked to increase uh, paid parental leave to 26 weeks. None of those things have happened. The government's ruled them out on the basis that it's too expensive. So when the Grattan Institute's uh, chief executive, Danielle Wood, memorably likened female workforce participation to iron ore being left in the ground, it seems they're still going to wait until uh, July next year uh, to dig it up. The other area is, of course, the job seeker unemployment benefit. Labor has said they're not against increasing it in future, but they're not going to do it in the October budget. So that will also cause some disappointment. Mm. So was the Jobs and Skills Summit a success? And by that, I mean, you know, as far as everyday Australians are concerned, will the announcements at the summit help the economy overall? Will they lead to better workplace conditions, more jobs, higher wages, for example? I think on both measures of the optics and the outcomes, I think it was a success. Uh, On the optics, you know, you have the adults are back in charge and we listen to all sides and, you know, we talk to unions and business and we found some common ground. On the concrete outcomes, 
I think unambiguously increasing the migration cap and uh, increasing training to tackle the skill shortage are very good things. And, you know, the multi-employer bargaining idea does need to be fleshed out. But the, the, the statement of intent that they want to get wages moving again and thinking seriously about measures which, which experts in the field say would do that is a very good sign that they're going to be able to achieve that for people. Politically, did Labor and particularly Prime Minister Anthony Albanese get what he wanted out of the summit, do you think? Absolutely. They divided the Liberal and Nationals leader. They brought unions and business together. They had a long list of actions that they're going to take this year so they can, you know, defend themselves against the uh, charge that it was a talk fest. There was not a piece of butcher's paper in sight, so it wasn't just dreaming up you know, in a childlike manner. It was something that had a, had a concrete outcome. You know, you've mentioned, Paul, that there are some a number of concrete actions out of this summit. When could we likely see some of these start to actually take effect? Yeah, so Treasurer Jim Chalmers has said that the 36 concrete actions are things that can be done this year. Workplace Relations Minister Tony Burke has said there will be a bill this year for that long list of reforms. Mm -hmm. But there were also other actions that they're in favour of that need more work. That's things like investigating whether to make the minimum wage a living wage, conditions in the gig economy, including the road transport industry. And so it, it does sketch out a longer term agenda that will be uh, you know, discussed in this term of parliament, but not this year. There will be an employment white paper that follows this. Mm. As you say, David Littleproud, was there. Peter Dutton was not. Where does this leave the Liberal leader following, you know, what we can see as a successful jobs and skills summit? I think it will give him a platform to bash the government for having uh, taken such an ambitious reform agenda out of the summit. It sets the stage for a huge fight in Parliament on the industrial relations bill to come uh, in the rest of this year. But I I think it looks bad for him that he he didn't even want to show up. So, Paul, you've covered federal politics for a while now. As someone who's covered both what it takes to get policy change through Parliament as well as all the political theatre that goes along with it, what were your thoughts at the end of covering this two-day summit? I thought the event was very significant. It was very stage-managed, but the fact that they could coordinate that to that degree uh was very encouraging that they quite firmly have their grip on the levers of power and they're going to use them. And, you know, if you can get a room full of CEOs, including, you know, Alan Joyce, Anthony Pratt, Scott Farquhar, you know, the the, the Woolies and Coles bosses, if you you can get all them in, in, in a room and manufacture enough consensus out of that, that it looked and sounded like an ALP national conference uh, <laughs> or, or like an ACTU uh, union congress, then it really does show that Labor's links, not just with unions, but with the business community uh, are quite strong and that they are going to be quite good at achieving this, this rare bipartisanship that they're going to need for reform. to Paul Carp, political reporter for Guardian Australia. You can find all of his coverage of the Jobs and Skills Summit at theguardian.com, including his analysis piece where he evaluates the policies they agreed to over the two days, and he also looks at the political fortunes of the key players who attended the event, and also one who didn't, opposition leader Peter Dutton. It's called Peter Dutton will be hoping Australians weren't paying attention to the Jobs and Skills Summit. 
It's a great read. I highly recommend you check it out. I'll post a link to it on the Full Story website. This episode was produced by Karishma Luthria and myself. Sound design and mixing by Joe Koning. Full Story's executive producers are Miles Martignoni, Gabrielle Jackson, Molly Glassie, and Laura Murphy-Oates. I'm Jane Lee. Catch you next time.